You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from Leadership Ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood here with my co-host for this season, dear friend and colleague, Gil Rendell. Hey, Gil. Hi, Lisa. Uh, Good to be with you again. Always, always, always. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us. This is the sixth season of our podcast, Igniting Imagination, and we are so grateful to all our listeners. We appreciate hearing from you about what resonates most. And what we keep hearing over and over again is more Gil Rendell. So if you haven't heard the two previous episodes with Gil from seasons one and four, I hope you'll go back and listen. We are so grateful to have Gil as our co-host for this season because we're focusing particularly on his latest work, a short monograph called Jacob's Bones, which you can download for free on our website. And that link is in the show notes. For each episode, we're inviting conversation partners who can help us dive even deeper into this question. What bones, that is core truths, values, and practices, will rest at the center and be the foundation for a new organizational institution, that is the the church that is emerging? So before we talk more with Gil, let me give you a brief bio. So the Reverend Dr. Gil Rendell is uh, a retired senior vice president and part-time consultant with the Texas Methodist Foundation. And prior to this position, he served the Alban Institute as an author, seminar leader, and senior consultant for 12 years. An ordained United Methodist minister, Gill served as senior pastor of two urban congregations in Pennsylvania for 16 years. He has an extensive background in organizational development, group and systems theory, and leadership development. Gil is well known for his work with middle judicatory and national denominational offices and staff as they wrestle with denominational and congregational change. He is the author of 10 books, a contributor to four books, and the author of numerous articles and monographs. His most recent book is Quietly Courageous, Leading the Church in a Changing World. Gil and his wife, Lynn, live in Pennsylvania. So Gil, let's give our listeners a little background on Jacob's Bones. Will you say a word about what you mean by Jacob's Bones? Well, essentially, Jacob's Bones is a conversation about uh, what are the values or the real treasures that uh, an institution is trying to bring forward and and to move forward with, uh, you know, what is it that you don't want to leave behind? And uh, frankly, this is a conversation uh, that has been building over a period of time. Uh, it actually started with you, Lisa, with you and with uh, Bishop Huey and Blair and others in a group that we're with. And we were trying to figure out what is the core of a religious tradition that has to make it through all this cultural change that's uh, going on. And... Um, you know, this is actually one of the really significant questions right now as the uh, the global Methodist Church is uh, beginning to kind of spin off from the continuing United Methodist Church, and it raises questions about what what is it that's going to carry forward. 
And so when you look at the biblical story about Jacob, and uh, actually it's followed with a parallel story of Joseph, they both talk about taking their bones after death and moving them with the, uh, the Israelite people. And they are stories about identity and they are stories about purpose. So it's about how do you take something and move with it into the future? Mm. And this has a lot to do with, um, with institutions. You know, that uh, the word I've come across in, in the work I've been doing is yushrafrat. Okay, let me, yushrafrat. Uh, not an not a common word, but obviously not an easy one to say either. But it talks. It, it comes from pre-Christian Roman law about how you take the fruit of the people who went before you. You use it as you're intended to use it without destroying or damaging it, so that you can pass it on to the people who will come after you. And when you think about the values of an institution, that's exactly what an institution does. It takes the truths and the values and the disciplines from an earlier time. It uses them, but then it passes them on. Okay, so if that's a function of an institution, then you have to raise the question, what's the fruit? What is it that they're passing on? And so that's where the joke, Jacob's Bones came from. That's great. That's so helpful. And you, you make a distinction between, when you talk about institutions, you make a distinction between institutions and the organizations and structures that hold the institution. Can you say more about that? Sure. In fact, that's a distinction uh, that uh, Hugh Hecklow made in his work on institutions. And he has mm-hmm. a little book about institution. It's not the easiest thing to read, but boy, have I found it to be helpful and, uh, and really kind of stunning. He separates them out so that you can see that there is an organization that has to be cared for. But the purpose of the organization is to carry the institution, meaning the values. He doesn't actually talk about it as values. He talks about it as a construction of social reality. Our institutions hold within themselves a way of looking at the world. And it comes through their value system or it comes through their practices or whatever. But he makes that distinction. And when he's making that distinction, what he's saying is that, you know, that you have to understand both parts or one will be left behind. And quite frankly, that's part of what we're wrestling with, that uh, we're we've been going through a period of time in which leaders have been so anxious about their organizations. They've been so anxious about, you know, the number of participants that they have, about their budgets, about their buildings and deferred maintenance and about their governance. They've been doing all this stuff around the organization that it's easy to be captured by the anxiety over caring for the organization and forget what is that social construct, that is, what is that value, what is that, that institution is what, uh, uh, what um, Hecklow called it. And so, you know, making that distinction kind of gets you back to the point of saying, okay, what is the real value that we're trying to move ahead? Yeah. You've been so helpful to me over the years, helping me acknowledge, realize, observe that the anxiety is all around the organizational structures. Right. And so making that distinction is is really helpful because if you can get back to the identity and purpose, the the core truths, values, practices of the institution that we're trying to carry forward that separates it out from the anxiety that swirls right. around yeah. the organizations and right. structures. 
And I think it's important to, to realize that just by making the distinction does not relieve you from the anxiety of the organization. <laughs> I mean, it's real. Yeah. A whole lot of our congregations are not going to make it or they're not going to be able to continue as they are. And what can I say, except that's the fact. I mean, you know, let's, let's just kind of walk into that. But if we spend all our time trying to save the organization and we lose the institution, then what was the purpose anyhow? Right. It's, I think we have to understand that yeah. the organizational side is not only malleable, it has to actually be expendable. Oh, and, Gail. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the hard part. And so how do you lead, you know, with that in mind? You know, it's a huge challenge. Yes. And, and this is exactly why we're having this season. And why we've invited these folks to come have conversation with you and with us is because this is, it's challenging, but it's really important work right now for this season. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm looking forward to it because, you know, some of the people we're going to talk to, I know some of the people I, I, we're going to talk to, I don't know, but the point is that none of us has the answer. We all have to figure it out together. And so by listening to each other around these issues is how we do it. So, Gil, this, our first guest, you've actually known for a number of years and worked with for a number yeah. of years. So, will you introduce him to our listeners? Sure. Uh, our guest that we're going to be speaking with is Bishop Will Williman, and he is a colleague of mine, a friend of mine. We have talked over the years. Uh, the Reverend Dr. William Williman is professor of the practice of Christian ministry at the Divinity School at Duke University. He's also served eight years as bishop of the North Alabama Conference in the United Methodist Church. And in that conference, there are about 157,000 Methodists, 792 pastors. And this is all in North Alabama. And so his background is both, you know, within the seminary, but also out in the field. For 20 years prior to that time as as bishop, he was dean of the chapel and professor of Christian ministry at Duke University at Durham in North Carolina. And Will has authored over 80 books. Uh, His articles have appeared in in publications, including Theology Today, Interpretation, Liturgy, Christianity Today. Uh, People have encountered Will in so many different places. Yeah. And so that's who we're going to talk to today. That's great. So as a pastor, I, in the parish, you know, preaching week in and week out, I would often go to Willimon's work on scripture, you know, stories, all those sorts of things, such great fodder for a pastor. So one of the things that stood out for me as we had this conversation with him is that, you know, he's known as a bit of a provocateur, if you will, (laughs) of the church, you know, uh, truth-telling, uh, making observations that are uh, that make people uncomfortable, those sorts of things. But he, it really struck me in this conversation. He he's not standing on the outside throwing rocks, right? He is in it. He is, he, you know, he served as a bishop. He now, even as a professor, he could be kind of sitting in an ivory tower, but he's not. Every week, he is preaching somewhere small churches in North Carolina, big churches, wherever. And then he has this practice and he mentions it where after, after worship, he asks to have the leader stay and have conversation with him. So he's, he's just in it. He's Mm -hmm. leaning into the work and what it means to be the church today. And that, that has such integrity and 
um, power, I think. What stood out for you, Gil? No, I I, I agree 100%. I think we need to listen to Will as someone who has skin in the game, someone who is really uh, in this. I think you've described it really well. And as people listen to our conversation, one of the things that I hope that they'll be able to hear is how often he responds with a story. Mm. And what that means for me is that, you know, let's, let's place two things alongside of each other here. One is that here's a guy who did his homework. Uh, you know, he, he has done all of his academic work. He has written books. He has been teaching. Uh, he's been preaching regularly, as you described. Here's a guy who's done all this work. And I mean, it is really substantial. And so when we ask him a question, one of the things he could have done was simply say, well, let me explain that to you. Okay, and he, he would have he could have given us something that he had figured out. Instead, what he does, he tells us a story. Yeah. And the story kind of takes us right into that kind of a like that I call it a gadfly, uh, you know, that gadfly <laughs> moment where he, he kind of pushes at, you know, well, here's the reality here here's what we're looking at. But if you push it, here's what's behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of makes that known. He exposes it. And I really, I, I enjoy it. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, one thing about Will is he will always kind of uh, turn you around to show you something. Even if you knew it, you didn't realize you were looking at it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's good. So let's listen to our conversation with Will Willimon. So, Will, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's wonderful to be part of your podcast. And thank you for your your podcast. <laughs> well, you bet. You bet. It's been fun to do. So I'm going to jump right in. Your, um, your memoir is called Accidental Preacher, and your website is Peculiar Profit. And it feels like a good place to begin to ask you, what makes you accidental and peculiar? Tell us a little bit about your vocation and history with the church? Well, I think by using the word accidental, I'm, I'm trying to point toward the fact that none of us, none of us is self-created and no preacher is self-assigned or self-summoned or self-called. Being a pastor is a job you can't apply for and it's, you, you got to be called or coerced if you... <laughs> Proved to put it, want to put an edge on it, and um, I'm, I feel very much that way. I feel like, I, to my surprise, I got summoned when I was back in college. My mother told me this is not going to go well because preachers have to be loving and caring and patient and dear. Let's just say God has not given you any of those gifts. And um, <laughs> when I've told that story. Occasionally, lay people have said, your mother must have been a perceptive woman. Uh, <laughs> so I feel accidental in the sense that my presence in this vocation and during this work, I think, cannot be explained, I hope, without reference to a God that delights in summoning the wrong people to do God's work. Well, you have been... Uh... For so many, for so many, and I included in that as a preacher and a pastor, um, you have been an inspiration and um, a guide and a help in, no, in, well, thank in you. many ways. 
you have, interestingly enough, given your life to the institution of the church, um, and yet a number of folks would describe you as kind of a a spur under the saddle of the institutional church. I believe our friend Gil <laughs> called you a gadfly. <laughs> I do. He, I do. He may have called yeah. me worse. Uh, <laughs> I take that. Knowing Gil Rendell, I, I'll, I'll take gadfly, gadfly as a high compliment. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where that comes uh, from for you and a little bit about uh, your relationship with the organizational yeah. institution of the church. You know, uh, I, I got to say, when you say, uh, Lisa, you know, I gave my life to the institutional church, it, it kind of felt more like it. the institutional church took my life. Because <laughs> uh, that's how it felt enough. back in the 60s. I mean, I'm from the 60s and, you know, don't trust anybody over 30 and uh, move out of the way. It's the age of Aquarius. Let us take over. So I, I remember my becoming a Methodist minister, my being joined to this institution being a kind of humiliating experience uh, and feeling odd and like I was being coerced into it. And, but you've noted also that, and maybe that accounts for why I, I think I've always been a uh, grateful, enthusiastic Methodist, but I hope always a kind of uneasy Methodist. I know uh, after I, uh, put out this polemic against the uh, protocol that was devised. Uh, a student passed me in the hall and said, I was kind of surprised to read all the nasty things you said about that protocol agreement. <laughs> and I said, why? Why would I be in favor of such a thing? And they said, uh, the student said, look, you've spent your whole career throwing rocks at the institution of the Methodist Church, wanting it to dismantle, to be reformed. Hey, you're about to get your wish. Rejoice. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, maybe the Lord has sent you to me. Yeah, that, mm. that's, that's a good point. And in fact, I, as I look at, you know, plans of those who say they're going to disaffiliate or separate, part of my sadness is I look at some of their plans and think, Lord, why didn't the United Methodist Church step up before this? And make necessary reforms and that, that maybe could have saved us from being at this point. Uh, but hey, United Methodist Church, it's never too late to step up and do the reconfiguration that would make our institution uh, much more adaptable into the future. And uh, by the way, speaking of institutions, Gil Rendell helped me a lot. When he, he noted the anti-institutionalism that appears to be abroad, <laughs> to which I said, I wouldn't know what you're talking about, Gil. I've sold my soul <laughs> to the institution called Duke University. Uh, but where Gil mentioned, uh, hey, marriage is an institution. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that very helpful. In fact, I've moved uh, from what Gill said to an assertion, and that is the tragedy is the United Methodist Church is guilty of trying to institutionalize ourselves as if we were General Motors 1955, rather than when we should have organized ourselves as an institution somewhat akin to the institution of marriage. But, uh, Will, in all these cases, and I think this goes back to... Um 
the notion of you being a gadfly, uh, that uh, is it not possible to love an institution, to care for an institution, to see the importance of the institution, but at the same time be aware of our discomfort with that institution? Uh, and be willing to be critical yeah. and be willing to, re- I mean, you know, yeah. the gadfly is the nuisance, the one who makes other people uncomfortable. But, you know, you have always made other people uncomfortable by asking appropriate questions, by pointing out blatant truths. I think the discomfort is a side hmm. we tried to hide from ourselves for too long. Amen. And I've been privileged to have been somebody that uh, has made various efforts with the help of colleagues uh, to say to United Methodism, hey, um, we, we, we've, the church must be reformed and ever reforming. And uh, sometimes my criticism has been taken as uh, disloyal or disrespectful or whatever. It, and my, part of my defense, and, and this may be my own self-delusion, you'll have to tell me, but I think being an institution, a thriving, purposeful, happy, contented institution would be easy if it weren't for Jesus Christ. And I think the moment I get my body of Christ functioning efficiently and people are happy and content, in fact, I'd say a happy, contented church is only one sermon away from deep unhappiness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he, here along comes Jesus and says, you whitewashed tombs, or says to us, hey, I'm glad all of you are here and are having a wonderful time loving up on each other. But where are the others? I didn't die for the church. I want the world. It's all mine. Now, have you a nice worship service and then get out of here. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that some of my critique and discontent has arisen from the fact that Jesus has innumerable ways of keep saying to us, hey, it's my church, not yours. And uh, it's my mission. And y'all want to join me in my mission or not? Well, uh, well, with that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think uh, congregations, institutions, denominations get sidetracked away from the gospel is they give their attention other places. They are e- easily captured. Uh, do you remember way back when we were uh, young men? Gibson Winter wrote his book about the suburban captivity of the church. I read it. Yeah, it. I, I got it uh, my last year of seminary. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so you know that that capacity that capacity to be captured by the culture. What what's yeah. been ca- capturing the congregation or the denomination in your mind that has distracted us from the gospel? Well, my next book is got a title assigned by the editors. Uh, Don't look back, and it's hope for Methodist future. And I'm trying to listen to pastors and others uh, who are Methodist of various uh, ilks. And I'm trying to talk to pastors and congregations about what what's next. Uh, where do we go from here? What's the most important work we should be doing? Uh, you can imagine how I have benefited from the Igniting Ministries podcast. Part of my... My thesis is, hey, United Methodist, um, I'm not sure that 
general conference, whenever it meets, or the bishops are the key to anything important that needs to happen in your congregation right now. Another thing I'm saying is that I, I don't think the pandemic coming out of the pandemic, or I don't think the coming uh, fragmentation, I, I don't think either one of those factors are your major challenges. Your major challenges are the ones you had before the pandemic and before we started talking about separation. And so that's kind of my guiding theses. And I'm hoping that the book will be, uh, I'll tell people what I've heard. And then also say to pastors and congregations, here's the work I think God is probably calling you to do in the present moment. I preach about every Sunday, and a church is often uh, served by my students. And I was in a little church, average attendance of about 25 to 30 in a rural area of North Carolina. And afterwards, as I often do, I said, could I meet with the church leaders? I'd like to have a conversation with them. And so I did. Uh, they were all women, mostly uh, women over 60 appeared to be. Anyway, I asked them, I said, what is the biggest challenge you face in your congregation right now? And the person spoke up and said, uh, it's, uh, it's the United Methodist Church. It's, 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 it's General Conference. And I said, really, in what way? And said, well, you know, they, they ordained that lesbian bishop out west somewhere. And I sat there in a dingy fellowship hall in a church that by my estimate will not be in existence within six or eight years. You're telling me that's your biggest challenge? Wow. So it is easy to get distracted in the present moment. Yeah. And there's sometimes I think the church argues about some of the stuff we're fighting over because it's easier to fight over those subjects then have a good argument about how can we have a future? How can we welcome in the two or three generations of Christians that we have excluded? That's hard. And maybe that's why we've been arguing. One of my students said that she was serving a, a rural church for field education in North Carolina and said, my people will just not budge on issues of LBGTQ inclusion. And I've tried this and I've tried that. And I said, don't worry about it because the Lord is solving that problem. They won't be there to argue within just six or eight years, I'm sure. Maybe we can just go at this a little bit because what you've been talking <clears throat> about right now are distractions. What are the, you know, what are distracting congregations, yeah. you know, whether yeah. it's, the division of the denomination, maybe we can kind of pick it up from there. And, and so um, would wonder uh, from Will, you know, if we're talking about those things that distract congregations and congregational leaders, whether it's, you know, um, issues of homosexuality, issues of politics, issues of politics of the church, it's easier to pay attention to what bothers us out there than it is to pay attention to what we have to do right here. And that would mean right here ourselves. And so instead of, um, you know, uh, congregations that are worried about what's wrong, 
where do you point for congregations and congregational leaders to have them claim what's right? Um, what is it that belongs to them? I mean, this goes to that whole conversation about what are we trying to move into the future? Instead of worrying about what we're trying to get away from, what is it that we actually hold that we're trying to move into the future uh, and that we have to be at least aware of ourselves in order to do that? I don't mean to sound too uh, <laughs> pious here, even though Methodists are pietists, uh, but I, I think Jesus Christ, from the beginning, Jesus Christ has always been difficult to pay attention to. From the beginning, he's always been hard to hear. That wonderful moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes a casual comment about Lest you drink my blood and eat my body, you're not worthy of me. <laughs> and then says, a lot of his disciples stopped going around with him after that. I mean, that, that they signed out. They checked out after that comment. And would you also go away? Well, at times we'd like to, but we, you have the words of truth. And I just, so I think it's always easier uh, to, to listen to other voices than the voice of this one who says, come unto me. And also says, I send you out. And um, there are times when I think sometimes our Methodist problems are, are due to the fact that maybe we have taken our eye off the ball. We have uh, not allowed the main thing to be the main thing. And we've had our arguments. But at the end of the day, those arguments have got to answer to Jesus Christ. Is this something Jesus Christ is concerned about? Is this, uh, how would Jesus Christ respond to this? Uh, has he given us any help in, in talking about it? it it's kind of sad. Uh, so many things we argue about that we seem to be splitting up over. I know uh, some people say, well, uh, I'm sorry, I just believe in biblical authority, and that's important. And I said, okay, give me some biblical authority. Come on, give, give me, come on, give me some text that uh, justify what you're doing. And by the way, I'm ready because uh, just on separation, you know, you're weak. <laughs> you, <laughs> Jesus isn't giving you much assistance on that. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of typical. Or when people will say, how does the Methodist church stand on sexuality? Issues, And I said, you know, we're vulnerable because it does not seem Jesus Christ believes this is the most important designation of human beings. He seems to be about other matters. And maybe that in itself is a kind of solution to our, some of our dilemma. But I think focus. And one of the helpful things uh, that your work has done is to keep pleading for focus what well, a theme I've heard in Igniting Ministry podcast is be real clear about your purpose. And it's okay for you to be fuzzy about everything else, but you got to get clear on that purpose. I think that is a life-giving word for so many of us. And I preached a sermon recently and I got two emails saying, why didn't you speak up on inclusiveness of all people, regardless of their sexual orientation. I got two other emails saying, we are sick and tired of being lectured by people like you on 
issues of uh, affirming LBGTQ people. And I thought, well, you know, Methodist middle of the road, is, is that's not bad. But I also thought maybe we're part of this in this problem because both sides, as that issue settles out into two sides, which you spend any time looking at it, found out it's not two sides. There's a variety of conversation partners in it. But maybe we're in that problem because we, we got people who've decided this cause or that concern or that demographic is more important than the church. And, and so we're going to push this. And if it means the dissolution of the congregation, so be it. Well, I'm just afraid Jesus Christ, the great congregator, it doesn't cooperate with that limited a definition of church. Well, that was really a great response. Uh, and I really, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I like the fact that you kind of included our work in that, the way we work together. But what I don't want the listeners to miss is that what you're talking about here is not doing the work alone, that none of us are to do this work alone at this point. We all need others to help us and the community to work with. And, and I hope that comes through as well. Uh, I resonate so much with what you're saying. And I feel that, you know, that, that sense of, of almost having to live in ambiguity just to get from day to day. But part of that is also to be able to say, as a person of faith, there has to be some core. There has to be some, some place of substance from which at least one foot does not move. Because that's who we are. That's what we're called. We are called by, yeah. by a Christ that sees a world that is different than the, the one that most of us see. Uh, and we have to be able to put a foot there. Mm. And I think one of the things that we're struggling with as a church uh, and particularly in this culture, is to be able to name that which is so central. And so, you know, I mean, I've played with this a number of different ways. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this notion that there are 613 Mosaic laws that David got down to uh, 15, that um, uh, Micah got down to three, that Jesus got down to two, loving God and loving neighbor. I mean, there has to be that kind of fundamental peace. So, yeah. How do we find that? Uh, how do we find that with any sense of agreement, not simply by agreeing with each other, but by agreeing with the gospel? Do you have any sense of, of how you go at that? I, I think you're absolutely right that we've got to be able to know and name our core. We've got to be able to uh, name and reiterate and keep refurbishing and hold ourselves accountable to our purpose. And I would say that is a Jew from Nazareth who lived briefly, died violently, and rose unexpectedly, and then returned to the same losers who disappointed him and said, okay, you're, you're now going out you're in good. my name for right. the world. You're it. That, that, now, I can understand why much of the world is baffled by that declaration. Good. Yeah. I can understand that. I can also understand the frustrations in trying to make that declaration more palatable to the world. The, the world in their worship of power, in their notion that politics is God, in their definition of a human being as mostly, mostly sexual expression or acquisition 
of capital or, you know, whatever. But yet that's our, that's our good news. We, we call that euangelion, that good news. So I think mm-hmm. we have to keep being drawn back to that. And oftentimes the church is, there are just so many reasons we'd like to kind of weasel out of that and say, well, you know, whatever works for you, that's beautiful. Or, um, you know, hey, we, we, this is just our opinion. This is a cosmic claim that this is reality. And church is called adjusting to the true living God without producing easier to get along with gods. So I, I think it's theological. And therefore, when a congregation says, you know, our job is to serve the, the community in which we live, I, I say, uh, uh, okay, that's a, that's a start. But why? And in whose name? To keep a lid on this community uh, so that people won't get out of control who feel aggrieved uh, because they're victims of injustice. No, we're out there because Christ sent us out there. And we're there in his name. And that's... The core, and I remember uh, I was in a church. We had a ministry with the ill-housed, and we opened up our church once a week, once a month for a week for four families, and we provided hospitality for those four families and all. And it took a lot of work and a lot of uh, to, to make that safe, welcoming space for those families. But I remember one night, uh, one of my members, uh, we all... Uh, had shared meals with them. And uh, this woman came out and she said, I have just met the most courageous woman I've ever met. And um, I asked her, could I pray with her? And what would she like me to pray for? And she said, for $23.18. And the woman said, you need $23.18? I I can get that for you right now. Uh, But why do you want to pray for that? And she said, that's how much the medicine costs for my son who's a diabetic. And I don't have it. And he hadn't had it for a week. And she said, suddenly as a mother and all, I leaned over and I took her hand and I said, I'll pray for you and I'll get you the money right now. But, but, I just want to say one little thing to you. I believe that Durham, North Carolina was not created by Jesus Christ. We created it. We created this town and this economy and pharmacy, all that. That's us. God doesn't, that wasn't God's idea. And she said, and I believe Jesus Christ will one day judge all of this and set it right. And that's going to be bad news for some people like me, but I guarantee that's going to be good news for you. (laughs) To me, it just seemed to be a moment. I told the woman, I said, uh, wow, why shouldn't this homeless mother know the truth? (laughs) and, And so the church is not only about service and all and showing God's love. It's, it's also about telling the truth and the truth we think is a Jew from Nazareth who lived briefly, died violently, and rose unexpectedly. It, that's the truth about God that is reality. So that's the core. And, and I think we got to keep going back to the core. 
one thing one of your guests said in a podcast was, um, hey, church, you don't need to go out and, and reinvent the wheel. You don't need to go out and invent new uh, social welfare organizations and tutoring and feeding and all. Uh, ask First ask, is there anybody in our neighborhood who's doing Christ's work, even though they may not know Christ? Now, how can we go out and partner with them? And show up and say, hey, what would you give for six wise, experienced, older adults <laughs> in the work that you're doing now? I can deliver them next week uh, <laughs> from that church right down the street. Well, I, to me, that's trying to keep clear about our chief purpose. And sadly... When I talk to pastors who say they're part of the great resignation, that they're thinking about leaving, and I say, what is wearing you out? Many times they mention stuff that has, own, you know, has the most remote relationship to Jesus Christ being Lord and Caesar not being Lord. So I like your emphasis on purpose. I don't know if that's responding to your... Well, no, I mean, uh, well, I just love your stories. Uh, and what I love about the stories is that uh, they're able to locate fundamental truths and principles in the actual day-to-day -day living that you're watching people do or that you're part of. In yeah. other words, you don't separate out the idea from the actual day-to-day -day living. It's all part of one piece as it, as it fits together. And no, so exactly. a part of that, you know... That's well, not a bad definition and, and, of pastoral work. To, uh, yeah. to that it's not so much your your your, your enunciated principles, but it's enlisting people into the joy of working with Christ in the day to day work, and and that's one thing I loved as a pastor. And I just I love those moments when I would say to the Lord, "Would you tell me again why you thought it was a good idea to have a church at 453 Summit Drive in Greenville, South Carolina?" Because I think. This was not a good idea. I mean, these people are the wrong people for doing it. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you, invariably, those rascals would slip up and do something so faithful <laughs> that it would just obliterate my negativity and cynicism. And, of course, Jesus would say, wow, that's good, isn't it? That's better than yeah. anything you've ever done. And I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I saw it, Lord. He said, did you see it? I said, I said I saw it. And uh, I, I, I do think working on the purpose can be a wonderful opportunity for a congregation to recover the adventure of being the ones God has chosen and sent. Well, but I, I want to push that a little bit more. And then, Lisa, I, I don't want to bump you out <laughs> no, of go ahead, go. at all. But, you know, uh, part of this is you're also talking at the same time about the pastors who are part of the Great Resignation because they're worn down, and then, uh, you know, then your next step is to infer they're being worn down by those things which they ought not worry about anyhow. And so, you know, it's a matter of, of separating the wheat from the chaff and, and people getting caught yeah. up so much with the chaff. Then, then talk a bit about how you find the wheat. In other words, I've been thinking about your time as, uh, as bishop in, in North Alabama, uh, where... Mm. You know, you had your, your rubber to the road. You had uh, skin in the game and where, where you were having to try to make those kinds of decisions. How did you keep yourself? What, what did you do to try to stay focused on the wheat, on that which you really wanted to preserve uh. 
while you were willing to let the shaft go away. Okay. Uh, one thing I did was I asked for help. And that's, I keep saying to pastors, who has God given you close by who has a ministry of helping you recover what you do well and stop doing what you don't do well? Uh, I called in Gil Rendell. And I didn't know how to manage a cabinet. I was overwhelmed by the management uh, task before us. And I can remember we had a retreat at Junaluska. I remember Gil Rendell uh, saying to the cabinet things like, you have an active, energetic, committed bishop. And they said, yeah, well, you he's paying you to say that now. And then Gil said, that could be a big problem for you because if you don't watch him, he's going to take over work that you should be doing and you will consent to give him work. And what you're going to end up with is another tired, worn out bishop said, you guys' job is to give him the time and space he needs to climb out of the muck and mire of the day-to-day functioning of the church to take a long view and to inspire the rest of you to say, hey, let, let's, let's look to the distance. Another thing I remember, Gil, it, well, it, and it interested me, one of the things that Gil did for us as an outsider, like I was saying, well, I think I'm, I'm committed to do this. I'm committed. To, uh, I think we need to work on this. And you said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then Gil looked at my cabinet and said, I want all of you to be real careful. Do not say yes to anything this man demands that you do as a district superintendent unless you will also tell him one thing you'll stop doing as a district superintendent. And again and again, the DS has said to me things like, now, Bishop, I can do that. I'd like to do that. But um, I just want to warn you now, you got any ideas about what you want me to stop doing or you want me to come up? and tell you what I'm going to stop doing in order to do what you say is so important that I start doing. Anyway, that may seem to non-management people like, that may, that may seem to management people like a small thing, but for somebody without any training and how to lead in that way, it was a gift to find that God has sent me all the help I needed to make me function better. And then I got to, I'd say the other thing I just got to mention is I'm, I'm a preacher. And I found that the weekly rhythm of going to the biblical text and submitting to it, I remember distinctly in, in praying before I did my study for my sermon preparation, the Lord intruded into my prayers and made a comment like, uh, hey, do you notice anything in this text that speaks to all the stuff you have been worried about this week? I don't see anything there, do you? Well, then focus. Let's talk about what I want to talk about, not what you want to talk about. Well, that was so liberating. And 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 I find that my ministry is not half as adventurous, risky, or fun as the ministry that's constantly presented me. I'm, I'm reading 2 Corinthians last week. And uh, Paul says, I'm going to talk like a crazy man now. Uh, I'm going to do some bragging. 
And uh, I brag, I boast, because I've been beaten up more than any of you. I've done more jail time than any of you. I floated in the open sea for one, two days or something. And, you know, and then Paul said to me, shut up, you got it fine. You actually are telling me, coming back and whining, oh my goodness, my church now is so divided and I'm having difficulty. He said, when you've been in jail for about three weeks, call me. And then we can talk, but otherwise, so, so I think spiritual renewing is just the task of ministry. One last thing. I was with a pastor, uh, last weekend in an Episcopal church, a vibrant, booming Episcopal church. And by the way, you will rarely hear those words put together in a sentence, but <laughs> I just did. But, uh, and I said to him, you know, I'm talking, I'm listening to a lot of pastors. And a lot of them are depressed. A lot of them are down. And this distinguished Episcopal priest said, tell them to get off their butts and visit. He said, that's what I do when I'm depressed. And I said, you're ever, you're depressed? He said, of course. I'm, I get depressed. I get really down. And when I do, if I will get up and start connecting with my people, if I'll go to their homes, if I go to their businesses, if I walk into their classrooms, at the end of the day, I come back and I'm fine. And I come back thinking, wow, Jesus is really busy this week. I guess I better get in gear and join him, I guess. Uh, and, and he said, you know, the daily task of ministry are often life-giving in themselves, as long as you do the essential things God has called you to do and refuse to do the things God has called other people to do. I mean, you're coming right back to purpose, aren't you? I mean, if you stay grounded yeah. in that. Yeah. Right? I, uh, I remember one of my fellow bishops uh, was talking and was asking what he'd learned in the first year of being a bishop. And he said, well, the Lord's dealt with me. And the Lord said to me, James, uh, he said, being bishop felt like everybody was pulling at me. Everybody was pulling at me, grabbing at me. They want this. They want me to go there. They want me to say this. They want me to do that. Everybody just pulling at me, pulling at me. And said it was, felt like it was less of me left after they kept me. And uh, he said, so I went to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord said, James, it is arrogant for you to try to exercise gifts that I have not given you and, frankly, have no intention of ever giving you. You go exercise the gifts I've given you and do not attempt to call my giftedness into question by exercising gifts that I didn't give you. And he said, thank you, Lord. I, I will do my best to do that. And he said, suddenly, I love being bishop. Nice. Nice. It's a great word to, to pastors who are right in the trenches and exhausted. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to close yeah. out with one final question that we're going to ask all our guests who are part of this season. Um, so when you imagine the church 20, 30 years from now, so for these next generations, what do you hope is true? I hope we'll be Methodist. <laughs> I hope we'll be Methodist Christians, that is Wesleyan Christians. I hope we'll get half as much fun as 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 I think Wesley intended uh, this ministry, this church to be, I, I just think Wesleyanism is beautiful. It just seems to me a whole church built 
without the greatest, most beautiful liturgy, uh, without a very well-developed and articulated theology, but, but built on mission. And, you know, the night that I stood before a bishop and the bishop said to me in the words of the ordination service, here's my interpretation, here's what I heard. The bishop said, hey, kid, we're going to ask you to do a very un-American thing. We're going to ask you to subordinate your life, maybe even your marriage and family, your own needs uh, to the mission of Jesus Christ. And we're going to send you wherever we think you're most needed in that mission. Uh, are you up for it? Well, you know, I was 24. I was reckless and engaging and risky behavior and all. And, and it, the, I, it was a turn on. And I hope that we can recover some of that joy of being, of, of being Methodist and Wesleyan. And part of it is going to be if, if we don't succeed in being a different church, we, we're going to get left behind. Because Jesus Christ just kind of has this way of saying, hey, I am going to get back what belongs to me. Now, do y'all want to be part of that? Or would you like to be some form of the men's garden club or rotary? Okay, you, it, it, you can decide. And so I hope we'll be part of that mission because I think that's God's chosen way of saving God's world. There it is. Thank you, Will Wilmon. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Will, good to be with you again, friend. So much so. I, I really appreciate your conversation. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.